of Abram. We started out in chapter 12 where God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. Going to our map here tonight. Am I connected there, Jaden? See if that uh, thing is connected. There you go. So uh, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is down in that area. Secondly, he went up to Haran. We saw that in chapter 12 and stayed there until he was 75 years old, until his father died. Then he went down into Canaan, into the promised land, stayed there for a while, not exactly sure how long. And then there was famine in the land. Last time we were in the book of Genesis, we looked at that. There was a famine and he went down into Egypt because of that famine. And that's kind of where the story leaves off, and that's where we pick up the story tonight in chapter 13. Abram has returned at this point, or is about to. In verse 1, he does. He returns to Canaan. It says, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. When I first read that, he says, okay, he went from Egypt, and he's going back to Canaan, but he's going to the south. That makes no sense at all, because Canaan is not to the south. Well, if you look there in your Bible, south is capitalized, it's a capital S. So it's not saying a direction, it's saying actually a location. And what that would be is the south of Israel, the Negev Desert, right there, the south of that Canaan area. And eventually they end up back in Bethel. Verse 2, it says he was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south, so he stayed there in the south, the Negev Desert, for a little bit, went as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. They end up back where they started before they went down into Egypt. If you look down at, or back at chapter 12, verse 8, it says he moved there, from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he's returned back to where he was, where he had initially built that altar in Bethel and called on the name of the Lord when he initially had come into Canaan. Bethel means house of God. Later on in Genesis, in, in chapter 28, is where it gets his name. Remember when Jacob was fleeing his home? Esau was a little upset at him for what had happened to him. And he's fleeing, and he goes to this, this location, and he has this vision of angels ascending and descending, right, from heaven. This, we always called it Jacob's Ladder, right, up and down. And uh, he names that place where he is House of God or Bethel, all right? And in Abraham's journey here, Abram's journey at this time, he's been there. He goes down to Egypt, struggles mightily in Egypt, yet God is faithful. God takes care of him brings him back to Bethel. And I think Abram's journey of faith here is, is moving him in many different directions, and he's learning a lot of lessons through all of this. He's learning many life lessons. We tell, it's funny that just before we came over here, Elijah was working with, uh, he, he wanted a little snack, and so he pulled out a cheese cube, and he got the cheese slicer. He said, can I do it? And I said, you can, but you have to be careful, or else you are going to learn the hard way right? You have to be very careful. And sometimes those lessons, we have to learn them, and we tell our kids that, right? You can learn the hard way, which means from your own mistakes, or you can learn, I wouldn't say the easy way, but at least the easier way, which is what? Learn from other people's mistakes. 
right? See what's happened to them and uh, maybe don't do that or avoid that or go some. Either way, you're going to learn these life lessons. And we see that in, in Abram. He, he arrives back at Bethel after his trip to Egypt. And we're told again here, look at verse 4 of chapter 13. He came to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. I think this is lesson number one for Abram and for us tonight call on the name of the Lord. And this is a lesson that I think Abram learned the hard way. Because guess what? When he went down into, or before that, when he faced famine, what did we not see? We didn't see that. We didn't see that phrase, he called in the name of the Lord for God's wisdom and what he should do in famine, and he called in the name of the Lord for God to take care of him. He goes down into Egypt. We don't see it there either. We don't see that he called the name of the Lord, and here he goes down into Egypt and just makes a royal hash out of things. But we see it now, and maybe he's learned a lesson here that things didn't go as well as they could have been. He took matters into his own hands, and he comes back into Canaan here. He comes back to Bethel, back to that altar, and he calls on the name of the Lord again. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? What does that mean for us? What does it look like for us to call on the name of the Lord? When, when, when Abram is doing this here, what is he saying? What is he going through? I think one of the best places for us to see what it means to call on the name of the Lord is to consecutively just read through the Psalms. All right, if you have you got some spare time, you're not quite sure where to go in your Bible reading next, start in Psalm 1 and just read through the Psalms, and you see the psalmist giving us these, the psalmist, many of them, giving us examples of what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Because some Psalms are Psalms of great joy. Praise be to the Lord. You know, things are going well, and praise his holy name, and thankfulness to God, and, you know, bring out the harp, and, and bring out the, the people that are going to sing, and let's praise the Lord, and that's good. That's part of calling on the name of the Lord, our worship to him, our praise of him. But that's not all the Psalms, is it? You see the other side of the Psalms as well. Psalms that are written when the psalmist is in a time of great distress, and they call out on the name of the Lord in what we would call a lament. And some of those Psalms are like, why, O oh Lord? What is going on, O oh Lord? What have you done? You know, will you not avenge my enemy? Will you not? And you see that lament, you see that distress, and you see both of those in the Psalms. They are both calling on the name of the Lord. And I think that's true for us here still today, and that is that God wants to hear both sides of that. He glories in the praise side of things, and God, you are great, but he also wants to hear from us when things are difficult, and we ask that, you know, what is going on here? God, don't forsake me. Don't abandon me. We saw that this morning in our, in our scripture reading, Isaiah 55, verse 6. It said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Christian, don't forget that. The Lord is near. Call on him. We have such a huge resource in God. Now, granted, he's much more than that. But I don't think we take advantage of it as much as we should. Jeremiah 33, 3, I think I put some of these verses up here on the board. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. God is saying, call to me. Call on my name. It's what God wants us to do. 
Hebrews 11.6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think that might be another way to say they call on the name of the Lord. They diligently seek him, crying out, calling out to God, seeking where he leads, seeking what he wants for our lives. Psalm 18.3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. How many of you know that song from that psalm, right? You sing it around, I will call upon the Lord. Somebody else, I will call upon, I'm not going to do the whole thing, I can't do all parts at the same time. But it reminds us that we should be calling on the Lord. And then in verse 46, which is also part of the song, it says, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let the God of my salvation be exalted. I hope that song gets stuck in your head for the rest of the evening and the rest of the week now that I've brought it up because it's a, it's a good one. I will call upon the Lord. That's what he wants us to do. He's worthy to be praised. He is our rock. He is the God of my salvation, and we should exalt him. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to come before the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Whether it's asking for wisdom, as we're told in James 1 to do, whether it's asking for mercy, God is never inconvenienced. God never pushes that away as if it's not the right time or he doesn't want to hear that. Uh, let me say it this way. Those who call him Lord better be calling on the name of the Lord. That's that relationship, right? If you call him Lord, you better be calling on the name of the Lord. When Abram didn't, as we saw in, in Genesis 12, he got himself in trouble. But this time in 13.4, he calls on the name of the Lord, and it's right before another potentially sticky situation that he's about to get himself into. But this time he goes about it the right way. He's calling on the name of the Lord. This sticky situation he's about to get into in chapter 13 involves strife with family members. Anybody ever been there? Strife is challenging, right? Thank you for your honesty, Alan. Strife is challenging. It always is. But you throw in strife with family members, and you need a little bit extra calling on the name of the Lord sometimes, right? There's a little bit more emotion there. There's a little bit more going on. And that's what's about to happen here to Abram and Lot. Pick it up in verse 5 to 7. Here's the situation. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Lot, who was also very wealthy, actually went down into Egypt with Abram. He comes back to Bethel in that area with him. Lot has many flocks. He has herds and servants and, and, and all these things also. Keep in mind, some of these problems stem from Abram's disobedience originally. You say, well, where did he disobey? When God called Abram in chapter 12, he said, leave your what? Family, right? And he didn't do that. He brought his father with him who died in Haran. And he brought his nephew, Lot, with him as well. He was supposed to separate. He didn't quite follow entirely. Verse 6, it says there's not enough room for all the people. There was, there was an overcrowding problem. Not enough grazing land for the, for the 
flocks, not enough watering holes for the, for the herds and for everybody. It also says in verse 7 that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are there as well. And so they're, they're vying for the same land also. And because of this, verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Abram's livestock. So how does Abram handle this? What, uh, how does he respond? How does he treat Lot and his herdsmen? I think this is lesson number two, and I think this is an extremely valuable lesson for us as well. Abram seeks peace over personal benefit. Peace over personal benefit. Look at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. He doesn't want strife between him and Lot and their people. So he acts in a way that reduces the strife, but notice it could have worked out very poorly for Abram. He wants peace over personal benefit. When Abram could have done what? He could have pulled rank, right? He could have pulled seniority and said, Lot, this is how it's going to be. You're going to go there. You're going to do this. And he doesn't do that. He seeks peace even over his own personal benefit. He acts calmly. He acts with brotherly love. Abram suggests here that they, they separate from each other, but then he takes it one step further, and he allows Lot the first choice of where he wants to go. What a statement. Whatever you choose, I'll go the other way. Whatever you choose, I'll take the other. What an example by Abram of peace over personal benefit. What Abram was saying is what's more important than my personal benefit is that we are at peace. He sacrifices what could have been best for him in order to do what was best for everyone. And we need to, that's a lesson we need to think through for ourselves because I think there's a lot of application for us. Even here in the 21st century in America, in this church, peace over personal benefit, peace over personal preference. In Psalm 133, verse 1, there's this great verse, and it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I quote this verse all the time to the boys. It actually happened yesterday. We were driving in the, in the parking lot here, and there was a little bit of strife in the vehicle. And I said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then I usually continue with the verse. The next verse, it says this. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. And the boys say, what? <laughs> That's exactly what happened yesterday. We're driving, and I quoted the first part of the verse, and I quoted the next verse, and Bryson says, what does that mean? We're not getting into all that verse this time. But the, the first verse, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, brethren to dwell together in unity, to put peace above personal benefit, to put peace above personal preference. There are huge implications of that for us in the church. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus. He says, you have unity because you are in Christ. 
right? So we're not striving to make up unity. We're striving to keep the unity that we have. Does that make sense? We're keeping the unity that we have. He says, do it in the bond of peace. You know, there's great irony in community. There's great irony in community, and that is this. We were made to be together, but when we're together, there's strife. You say, well, it doesn't work out too well, does it? Right? We were made to be communal people. We were made to live in community. We're not li- we were not made to be isolated or out from everyone else. That's why the church is so important. Yet, whenever people get together, there is the, the opportunity, and usually is the case, there is what? There is strife. So what do we do? If we're supposed to be together, but when we're together, there is strife, do we abandon the together because we can't get along? No. That's not the answer. We don't abandon the together, we abandon the strife. That's the key. A lot of people pull the plug and say, I'll just stay over here because I've been hurt too much, too many things have happened, I'll just do this on my own, I'll just watch church from home, I'll do whatever I need to do there. That doesn't work. The problem is not being together, the problem is the people, right? So how do we solve that? By God's grace... By submitting to his word, we must be better people so that we can be better together. Make sense? We have to strive to be better people. Now, it's not just, oh, I'm going to try really hard. It's submission to the word of God. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's the work of God's grace on us that we then become better people, more Christ-like, so that when those better people are together, they are better together. Because together is non-negotiable. I hope that's true in your in your view of the church and your view of Christianity. Together is non-negotiable. There is no other option. It's not, well, I could be or I won't be. No, no, no. It's only I, I have to be, we have to be together. We need a we mindset, not a me mindset. I don't know where I heard this quote, but I remember typing it into my phone and I, I came across it again recently and it says this, none of us can do alone what the body of Christ can do together. None of us can do alone what the body of Christ can do together. So here's Abram, right? He was willing to do something that benefited everyone, even though it may not have been what was best for him. He says, Lot, you go where you want to go, and I'll take the leftovers. And that could have been very poor, could have been very bad for Abram. He says, I'm willing to put the peace of this situation over my personal preference or my personal benefit. You know, that applies to our marriage, to our families, to our church life, to our giving, to our interpersonal relationships, our workplace, our politics, our citizenship, and the list could go on and on to all sorts of different areas. Now, think back to chapter 12. Abram learned this lesson the hard way, though. Because he acts well in this regard in chapter 13. What did he do in chapter 12, though? He said, Sarah, you say you're my uh, sister so that you get taken by the king and my life gets spared. That was not the best idea. That was not peace over personal benefit, right? That was putting his wife in harm's way in order to preserve his own life. And so he's learned this lesson the hard way and now is seeking peace, even if it didn't work out necessarily the best for him. How can you do that? How can we do that? How can we give up what may be best for you? Because the world tells us you fight for what's best for you, right? You get, you do you, right? You get what's coming for you. 
But the Bible tells us something different. So how can we give up what may be best for us in order to do what's best for others? The only way we can do that is to trust in the sovereignty of God and to trust that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That you say, even though I'm not seeking out my personal best, my, my personal benefit, I'm trusting God that you are a rewarder of diligently seeking you because that's what I'm trying to do in this situation. And I think that's what we see here in Abram. Faith in God gets you to that point. Do you trust God enough to provide for you even when you're not looking out for yourself, first of all? We see that illustrated a couple different places, many places in Scripture, two of them that I'll point out now. Remember Ruth? So Naomi and her husband, Abimelech, they go into Moab, and both their sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then all the men die. Orpah stays behind. Naomi's going back to Israel. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. Naomi says, I don't have any more sons. There's, there's no, there was no reason on earth why Ruth should go back with Naomi to a foreign country that she didn't belong to. The only person she knew was Naomi. It was a time of great sorrow for her and for everybody. And yet she said, your people will be my people. And she went back. And if you read the story of Ruth, you see her care for her mother-in-law. She goes out and starts gleaning in the fields. And she says, I'm going to take care of you. And it wasn't, it didn't seem like there was any benefit there whatsoever for Ruth. What was she going to get out of this arrangement? And yet who took care of her? God did. And she meets, providentially meets Boaz. Boaz marries her brings her into the lineage of Christ. She becomes the great-grandmother, I believe, of King David. Talk about putting somebody else's benefit above your own and saying, I'm trusting God that he's going to work that out. Trusting God that he's going to take care of me because I'm working to take care of this person. I think we see it in the story of Esther as well, if you remember that story. She went before the king, right? Risked her life when the king had not called her. Was she doing it for herself? She was doing it for her people. She was risking her own life. She was putting her, her personal well-being at risk in order for the people that were relying on her for their benefit to save them. And did God take care of her? He worked it out, didn't he? Not only did he save Esther, he saved all her people as well. Only God can do that. We trust in the sovereignty of God that by faith, he will take care of us. And note this, you are only able to love others like you should when you trust God like you should. You are only able to love others like you should when you trust God like you should. And I think we see that in Abram. Verse 10, the story continues. Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. That's a whole nother sermon for another time. There's lesson upon lesson upon lesson in what Lot does right there and where he ends up in the next couple chapters, which we don't have time for tonight. And then we see in verse 14, 
Abram's next lesson that he learns. Abram is currently in Bethel. Lot goes down into this area, just to give you an idea of where it is. Scholars are extremely sure where Sodom is, because it doesn't exist anymore. Kind of got burned up, right? And so somewhere in that area, so Lot actually goes kind of across the Jericho and then down there around the, Red, or the Dead Sea area. But in verse 14, I think we see the next lesson that Abram learns, and that's this. Verse 14, he says, The Lord said to Abram, all this has happened. Verse, or chapter 12, Abram has received the covenant promises of God. He's gone into Egypt. He's come back. These things have happened with Lot. Lot's got into some trouble in Sodom. And then verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. What's he saying? In every direction you can see. In every direction, as far as your eyes can see. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Then your descendants also could, I'm sorry, if, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson number three that Abram learned. He learned that God is gracious, merciful, and he keeps his promises. Since God's call to Abram in chapter 12, Abram has had his fair share of ups and downs, problems in Egypt, issues with his nephew. He's had some shining moments. He's had some moments of faith in God, but also some bumps and bruises and lessons learned the hard way. And yet God comes back to him and he does it again here. He does it in chapter 15. He gives him the sign of the covenant in chapter 17. We think of Abram or Abraham as this perfect man of faith who just trusted God relentlessly. It's not quite the picture we see when we read through it. And yet God keeps coming back to him and renews his covenant with him and reminds him, Abram, this is what I'm doing with you. This is where I'm taking you. This is what I'm going to give to you. Why? Because Abram's so good? No, because God is so good. And he says, look here, I'm going to give you all this land. All right, anywhere you look, that'll be your land. Your descendants will live upon this land. And then he says, look at the dust of the earth and try to count it. Can you? You can't. That's going to be what your descendants are like. You're going to be unable to number them. Keep in mind, how many descendants does Abram have at this point? None. Zero. Zilch. Right? And so he's got to trust the promises of God. But God here returns to his promise despite Abraham's lack of faith at times. Is that not a lesson for us as well? Who here is perfectly faithful to God? Yeah. We wish at times, right? We wish. We're not. And yet God keeps coming and renewing his promises. He does to Abram. He renews his promise of, for instance, for us, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You are in the Father's hand. You're in Christ's hand. And no one can take you out. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation and peril and nakedness and sword and all these things? No. He keeps coming back to us and renewing his promise with or to us. I think the lessons here that, uh, that Abram learned are also lessons for us today. Call on the name of the Lord. If you call him Lord, call on his name. Peace over personal benefit. That there's a lot of times in our life when we want to seek out what's best for us and we realize that's not what God would have us do. 
We seek the peace of someone else. We seek their personal benefit, and we trust God that he's going to take care of us in the meantime. And then we're reminded, as Abram was, we fail constantly over and over and over again. And he comes back to us and reminds us, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, and I keep my promises. You can trust me. That's a good God. That's a good God. It's the God of Abraham. How many times do we see that in Scripture, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Guess what? Same God. Same God we serve. Same God we can trust. Let's pray.